So in the last two sermons, uh, we covered the first 10 verses of Galatians. And I wanted to take it slow, five verses at a time, while introducing Paul, his life, his ministry to the Gentiles, and his enemies. I'm picking up the pace today, but keep in mind as we go on how he launched the body of the letter, set the tone in chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, getting straight to the point. The churches of Galatia were in a grave spiritual peril. That danger was moving away from the true gospel and thereby moving away from God. Now, before I read today's passage, I think it'd be good to provide a general overview of the letter's argument. Many commentators agree that you can divide up the book into three major sections. Verses 6 to 10 was the thesis statement. From chapter 1, verse 11 to the end of chapter 2, Paul gets personal and defends the origins of the gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, the apostle gets doctrinal and defends the contents of the gospel. Finally, from chapter 5 to nearly the end of chapter 6, he gets practical and defends the freedom in the gospel. So as we begin this first section, it may help to picture a courtroom scene. Perhaps you guys are fans of those types of shows or movies, Matlock, Law and Order, A Few Good Men. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Maybe that's one of your favorite lines. Well, picture a scene like that, and let's enter and seat ourselves at the gallery. Consider this my opening illustration. So the Judaizers are the prosecutors. We talked about them last week. Paul's the defendant. He also has to play the role of the defense attorney. The Galatians, though they should be on Paul's side, form the jury. The trial begins. What's the charge brought against the apostle? Just picture the Judaizers getting up from the seat, buttoning their suits, giving a menacing look at Paul, and turning to the Galatians. And F.F. Bruce, the commentator, uses sanctified imagination to summarize their accusations. Here's essentially what they're saying, the narrative against Paul that they're trying to sell. Quote, The Jerusalem leaders are the only persons with authority to say what the true gospel is, and this authority they receive directly from Christ. Paul has no comparable authority. Any commission he exercises was derived by him from the Jerusalem leaders, and if he differs from them on the content or the implications of the gospel, he is acting and teaching quite arbitrarily. In fact, Paul went up to Jerusalem shortly after his conversion and spent some time with the apostles there. They instructed him in the first principles of the gospel, and seeing that he was a man of uncommon intellect, magnanimously wiped out from their minds his record as a persecutor and authorized them to preach to others the gospel which he had learned from them. But when he left Jerusalem for Syria and Cilicia, he began to adapt the gospel to make it palatable to Gentiles. 
The Jerusalem leaders practiced circumcision and observed the law and the customs, but Paul struck out on a line of his own, omitting circumcision and other ancient observances from the message he preached. And thus he betrayed his ancestral heritage. This law-free gospel has no authority but his own. He certainly did not receive it from the apostles who disapproved of his course of action. Their disapproval was publicly shown on one occasion at Antioch, Syrian Antioch, when there was a direct confrontation between Peter and him on the necessity of maintaining the Jewish food laws. So, in quote, if the Judaizers and Paul really did meet in a courtroom, that's most likely how the prosecution would state their case. Now the apostle to the Gentiles must defend himself, counter and refute the false reports. They'll hear his story at the witness stand, straight from the horse's mouth, as they say. Paul's going to deny any premeditated claim to apostolic authority. Before that, Damascus Road, being an apostle, let alone a follower of Jesus, was the last thing on his mind. There's also something akin to an alibi argument here. Paul saying, I wasn't anywhere near Jerusalem in the early days of my gospel ministry. In fact, it would have been closer to 1,000 days before I made it down there. Just ask my friends and my foes at the Damascus region. And even when I arrived in Jerusalem, I only met a few apostles. Saw Peter for barely two weeks. And I was busy doing what I do. I was relatively unknown to the churches around there. Okay, so let me pause this legal drama illustration for now and go ahead and read Galatians 1, 11 to 24 before I talk further. You'll find Galatians chapter 1, 11 to 24 in page 810 of your pew Bibles going into page 811. Galatians 1. 11 to 24. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus." Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us, now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. 
I observe two natural breaks in this passage. The first is between verses 12 and 13. The second is between verses 17 and 18. Those two breaks in turn form three parts. The first part, consisting of verses 11 and 12, is the proper starting point. Paul states right away in his defense that the gospel he preaches is straight from God himself. In verse 13, he begins his story testimony, which extends into chapter 2. But within the story itself, there's a chronological break at the beginning of verse 18. So again, we have three parts. Verses 11 to 12. Verses 13 to 17. Verses 18 to 24. Now the challenge of today's sermon isn't so much explaining Paul's intentions or details of his argument. The main difficulty will be to move from interpretation to application. Paul's life to our lives. 1st century to 21st century. What are the principles for us today? I think it's helpful to revisit the application of verse 10, the verse right before today's passage. There Paul wrote, Or do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. The principle I derived from that verse was that we should simulate brave gospel servants. And if we continue with that idea, we have in today's passage more specific ways we can simulate Paul, a model brave gospel servant. So corresponding to the three parts, I say we should imitate Paul in three ways as he defends the gospel and his apostleship. One, Acknowledge the divine origins of the gospel. Acknowledge the divine origins of the gospel. Verses 11 to 12. Two, testify to the transforming power of the gospel. Testify to the transforming power of the gospel. That's verses 13 to 17. And three, live for the proclamation of the gospel. Live for the proclamation of the gospel. That's verses 18 to 24. First, acknowledge the divine origins of the gospel. Paul begins the first major portion of the epistle by addressing the Galatians as brethren. This means that they're not too far gone. He's amazed at them, and he has his doubts. But Paul's also confident in the Lord that they'll come around to his position. After all, if there's no hope of correction, why write this letter in the first place? The best remedy for the Galatian problem is to return to the beginning. He has helped them do that so far. We saw in verses 8 and 9, Paul's practically yelling, you must not welcome any other gospel than what we preach to you. No other good news than what you've received. Sometimes going back is the way to move forward. Just as our Lord spoke to the Ephesian church, remember therefore from where you have fallen, 
Paul's saying something similar to the Galatian churches here. At its roots, the gospel has its origins in God. Sure, he uses frail human messengers like Paul, but the saving word of Christ is not human. It's divine. If the good news comes with the label, it will not say made in U.S., made in Germany, or made in China. It would say made in heaven. To stress this point, Paul uses two prepositions. First, he says at the end of verse 11, the gospel is not according to man. According as in agreement or in conformity. The message of the cross does not agree with the taste, sight, sense of the unregenerate man. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. It's foolishness not only to the Greeks, but to all those perishing. It's an aroma of death leading to death. It also offended the Judaizers. The gospel does not agree with the performance mindset and self-righteousness. The grace of Christ is opposed to our works. The, uh, the gospel excludes the boasting of men. Jesus is ours through the gift of faith, not by human works. The gospel is not according Though I'm saved, there still remains in my sin nature a work-based principle. Every time I turn to Matthew 20 and read that parable of the workers in the vineyard, I think to myself, come on, shouldn't those hired early at 6 a.m. be paid more than those hired at 5 p.m. just before the close of business? If you're honest, you probably felt the same way when you read it. God's economy of grace and mercy does not agree with my economy of work and reward. By admitting this, we acknowledge the divine origins of the gospel. The good news preached by Paul is not according to man. Now look at the other prepositional phrase in verse 12, just before the first comma. Paul did not receive the gospel from man either. Don't miss the significance of this. We saw earlier in verse 8 and 9 that the Galatians certainly received the gospel from men, namely Paul and Barnabas. Most other churches in the first century received the good news of Jesus from men. The apostles and eyewitness entrusted with the gospel proclaimed it to the lost. This human-to-human transmission continued throughout church history and continues today. But if Paul received the gospel in the same way from another mere man, he would not be an apostle. If he was taught by, taught from another fallible source, we could question everything he wrote. The reality is that Paul got the gospel from Jesus himself when he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. We'll talk more about that revelation in the next point. For now, let's stop for some application. What would it mean for us to acknowledge the gospel's divine origins? 
As an illustration, consider the work of being a salesman. Believe it or not, I once applied for such positions. Ira, my wife, looked at me and just told me flat out, Honey, you're not cut out to be a salesman. I think most of you who know me and my personality would agree. But imagine if I had no choice but to, but to be a salesman. How would you advise me to be a good one? Well, I read this one piece of advice this week. Believe in what you're selling. Believe in what you're selling. Simple as that. If you think your products, the greatest invention since sliced bread, if you're convinced the car in the showroom's the best one in the world, you'll be an effective salesman. Let's apply this to the gospel. If we believe that the gospel is made in heaven, it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ, has divine origins, it's more likely that you'll be a bold witness. In the face of your adversaries, you can stand confidently. You can know that your gospel labors not in vain in the Lord. You can be unashamed of the apostolic message and its messengers and glorify God. You may even rejoice when you're counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Do you believe in what you're selling? Let me rephrase that. Do you believe in what you're proclaiming? Let's continue with Paul's defense and see what he has freely received from God. The gospel he preaches has divine origins and he received it from Jesus himself. Another part of his defense argument is that he wasn't even looking to be a gospel preacher. How did this conversion happen? So in verses 13 to 17, Paul testifies to the transforming power of the gospel. Sometimes people change, and you can easily explain why. Someone falls out of the godly habit of corporate worship. He or she's devoid of personal devotions. It's no surprise then that their love grows cold and they lack fruit. You look at one's friends and social life, pretty soon you see it's true what they say. By the company you keep, I can tell what life you lead. You can see the change coming miles away. And then you look at the conversion of Paul and you're like, where did that come from? Didn't see that coming. Even more of a surprise is that he became an apostle. He himself admits that he's not worthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. Not just mocking, not just threatening. He consented to Stephen's death. He was wreaking havoc on the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women committing them to prison. He was on his way to Damascus to do more of the same. Now you can certainly trace Paul's life trajectory from his earlier days to the pinnacle of Judaism. Let's go down the list. 
a Jew circumcised the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, born in Tarsus, but brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of their father's law, trained to be a Pharisee and zealous toward God. Nothing in his resume got us thinking that he'd be a model Christian. But something amazing, supernatural, had to happen. That something amazing, supernatural, is described in verses 15 to 17. But also, you can look at 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. I'll read it for you. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. It was divine, sovereign grace, the Lord's will to show mercy to whomever he pleases that led to this unlikely conversion. It was no surprise to God, of course. He had his purposes set for Paul since he was conceived, even before that, actually. He who called the Galatians in the grace of Christ also called Paul the persecutor of the church. The Father revealed his Son in Paul. That phrase, in me, is important. It teaches us the importance of that subjective experience of internalizing the objective truths of the gospel. You see, Paul no doubt knew about Jesus, the story surrounding him and his followers. He gathered the facts. But that's different from God revealing his son in him, in me, in you. Let me stop here at this first comma in verse 16 to stress how important this is. It's good that you had a moral, religious upbringing. It's wonderful that you had Christian parents, friends, and school environment. It's great that you've had plenty of exposure to Bible and faithful teachers to reveal the scriptures to you. But has the Son of God been revealed in you? How would you even know if that has happened? But these are good questions to ask as we work out our own salvation, as we examine as to whether we're in the faith. We need to test ourselves. Do we know ourselves? Christ in us, unless indeed we are disqualified. Thankfully, as a group of believers at a local church, we not only proclaim the revelation of Christ, we also observe and affirm whether Christ has been revealed in each of us. Both the objective and the subjective matters of the gospel ministry are important. As a representative of this church, it's my responsibility to remind everyone who attends the contents of the gospel. 
So bear with me for a few minutes as I return, before I return to verse 16. The gospel is that God created us in his image and placed us in a perfect environment, yet in our rebellion, we've sinned against our creator. Choosing to violate his laws, go our own way, we straight in our thought, word, and deed. God sees it all. Thoughts of envy and hatred, words of deception and blasphemy, deeds of theft and lust. Because we broke God's holy commands, we've fallen short of his standards. We don't deserve his goodness in our lives. We only deserve hell, eternal separation from God. But despite our evil ways, God the Father, in his love, sent his Son to become human. Jesus Christ came and lived without sin and then offered his perfect life at the cross. He did that for us to pay the eternal penalty of our sins as our substitute. He rose from the dead on the third day and ascended to heaven. He'll return someday to judge all mankind. We the saints eagerly await for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. Until then, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ be revealed in you and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. For that to happen, you must first and foremost repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sins, leave behind your past. Turn to Jesus and place your trust in him. You cannot earn eternal life or deserve grace. By definition, grace is a gift. By grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, can we enter heaven. This is the good news that Paul preached. So now let's return to Galatians 1.16. God didn't save Paul so he could simply live for himself. The purpose of his calling is written right there, that he might preach Jesus among the Gentiles. And because he was commissioned by Christ himself, there was no need for him to wait, no need for approval from anyone, no need to get permission from the apostles, send a job application to Jerusalem. We read in Acts 9.30 that immediately Paul preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. This is amazing grace. Before this encounter, Damascus was his latest target. After meeting God's son, it became his base of operations for about three years. From there, he also went to the nearby northern section of the Arabian desert, not for some contemplative retreat. I think Paul went there to preach the gospel. That's why you read in 2 Corinthians 11.32-33 that Paul got into trouble with a certain king Aretas, this ruler is none other than Aretas IV, Philopatris, the king of the Nabataeans. The Nabataeans were composed of Arabian Bedouin tribes. Apparently, Aretas was not a fan of Paul's preaching. So he wanted to trap him in Damascus. 
with the help of the city authorities, but he got away. So Paul was let down in a basket through a window and went to Jerusalem at last. Imagine the surprise when he showed up there. Paul left Jerusalem to go persecute believers in Damascus. Now Paul left Damascus to go join believers in Jerusalem. They would have a hard time believing that he now lives for the proclamation of the gospel. Let alone that he's saved. So let's turn to that point now about proclamation of the gospel. The rest of this chapter, Galatians 1, 18 to 24, corresponds to Acts 9, 26 to 31. Paul arrived in Jerusalem, and the disciples there were afraid of him. Thankfully, he had Barnabas, who took him to the apostles, spoke in his defense, and pointed them to his gospel work in Damascus. Now, it appears that most of the apostles were away from the city at this time. They were probably out helping the disciples in nearby churches in Judea. So Paul only got to see Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus. Paul practically swears under oath that he had minimal contact with the original apostles. Paul continued to proclaim the gospel in and near Jerusalem. It probably didn't take too long for him to draw the ire of the Hellenists and the other unbelievers. The Lord sent him on his way to Tarsus, his hometown in the province of Cilicia. There he continued his work and extended his activity to the neighboring province of Syria. With so much movement and activity, Paul didn't have time to get to know the saints at or near Jerusalem, but they were encouraged to hear of God's amazing grace in his life, and they glorified God. The man who formerly tried to destroy the church now lives for the proclamation of the gospel. To sum up Paul's argument here, in the first few years of his conversion, he answered the apostolic call of Christ. He ministered independently and without permission from the earliest followers of Jesus. Paul is God's own man. He did not disobey that heavenly vision, and got going right away. And we'll continue Paul's story next Sunday, Lord willing. Now as for us, this upcoming week, let us live for God's glory so that others may glorify God. And while doing so, don't worry about what others think about you, friends and foes alike. Like Paul, as we stand before the world and bear witness for Christ, we make a case for our own legitimacy. Be faithful to the commission, and you won't have to proclaim your own goodness. Let the Lord take care of your reputation. Let another another man praise you as you live for the gospel. Even better, let others praise Christ who is working in you. May the name of our Lord Jesus Christ be glorified in you and you in him. 
according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Let's finish our time together as we sing. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat. Yet not I, but do Christ in me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that for those who have placed their faith in your Son, now have a relationship with you. And the Spirit indwells those who are saved. And Lord, we're also thankful that each of us who are saved has a testimony, has a story to tell the world. We're united by the foundation of that message, the message of the cross that comes from you. But Lord, we know that you te- you've taken us from various different circumstances, stations in life, different backgrounds. We're all sinners, and we need the gospel. We need you. And there's a world out there that needs to hear the gospel. So help us to live as Paul did. Live for your glory. To proclaim the good news of heaven. So give us opportunities. Give us boldness. May we live for you. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.